Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is the Roy Green Show podcast. 13 uh, conservative party of Canada, say progressive conservative, 13 conservative party of Canada candidates are waiting to find out what the party members decide as far as the leadership of the party is concerned. A few weeks ago, people might have said Kevin O'Leary. Then, as you heard Kevin O'Leary on this program say, he was shifting his his, uh, support to Maxime Bernier. So is it Bernier? That seems to be the favorite choice at this point. We'll be speaking with Andrew Scheer before the end of the hour. But joining us from Toronto, from the Conservative Party convention, where he's observing and... uh, and reporting on what's going on is Global News Chief Political Correspondent David Aiken. David, thank you for the time. Voting ends at 4 p.m. Is Bernier the clear favorite? He is. And before we get to that, I can tell you that uh, Andrew Shear just voted. We watched him into the voting hall. People are voting right now. And uh, Andrew wouldn't tell us exactly what was on his ballot, but you can guess what the number one choice was. He's served his four kids, his wife, the whole fun. So that's part of the fun of these conventions. Most of the voting, of course, has been done by mail. And uh, I think the count is around 130,000 ballots were mailed in. That is a remarkable amount for a leadership race. They could set a record for turnout, uh, voter turnout in a leadership race. It'll be, you know, well over 50% of eligible voters. 240,000 or 260,000 are uh, eligible to vote. Um, And that brings us to Bernier. Uh, All all the indication we have from public polling, as well as some internal polling that uh, I've had a chance to look at from some of the campaigns, shows that it it definitely looks like Bernier is going to be the one to win it, probably on the 12th ballot. And uh, if anybody's got a chance to beat him, it'll be the guy you're talking to later in the hour, Andrew Scheer. I was going to ask you whether there's an opportunity for a Stefan Dion moment somewhere tonight. There is not, no. And, of course, that Stéphane Dion uh, convention, that was a liberal convention, was a brokered convention, a delegated convention, where you had in that one Bob Ray and Michael Ignati of, you know, who's going to send delegates my way? And while that was happening, (laughs) Dion came up the middle. Not going to happen here. It's a ranked ballot that all the members have. And so there you have filled out their first choice, their second choice, their third choice. The winner is the one who gets... 50% plus one of the available points. Bear with me here. Every single riding in the country gets 100 points. So every riding is equal. It doesn't matter if it's Calgary, uh, Midnapore, which is Jason Kenney's old riding, where there's thousands of members of the party, or a riding like Jean-Pierre Quebec, where there might be 200 members of the Conservative Party. They each get 100 points towards the leader. So there's uh, 33,800 points available. Winner's got to get half of those points uh, from all across the country. So it's a ranked ballot. Winner's got to get 50% plus one. And whoever is the last on each ballot gets dropped off. 
And so that's why we're going to go through multiple ballots because we've got 13 people and only one can drop off each each time. But on the the best information here is that on the 12th ballot, that is when it is going to be Bernier versus Scheer, and Bernier will emerge victorious. And that will happen about 7 o'clock tonight. So why uh, why Bernier, David? He has a past that could turn into a liability. Certainly the Liberals will take advantage of why Bernier mm-hmm. was tossed out of the or resigned from the Harper government as foreign minister. They'll take advantage of that. He'll deliver in Quebec, probably provide some decent opposition to Trudeau. But why Bernier nationally? Plain and simple fact, why Trudeau? Why did he win the prime minister's job? But why Bernier? They worked their butts off. I mean, that, that really in politics, there is no substitute for the hard work of politicking, knocking on doors, raising money, talking to people one at a time to get them to vote for you. Trudeau and the Liberals did that, and that's, that's one of the reasons Dion lost and Ignatieff lost and Harper won the times that he won. Good old-fashioned hard politicking. And Bernier's been doing this for more than a year. The campaign is officially only nine months old, but Bernier has been campaigning for a year. And like Trudeau, Bernier has, he's popular. Bernier is popular within conservative ranks. Yes, nine years ago, this is what most Canadians would have known him for, he got dropped from Stephen Harper's cabinet. He was the foreign affairs minister because he left top secret documents at his glamorous girlfriend's house. That's what Bernier is probably best known for. That was nine years ago. Since then, Bernier, in my sense, has matured, kept his head down, worked. Uh, he was a, a junior minister for part of the time in, in Harper's cabinet, kept his head down, worked within the party, developed policies that he likes within the party, and that made him very popular. And so you're going to see, after he wins tonight, again, if, if he wins tonight, on Monday, he has a sort of more permanent partner now. Uh, and he has two daughters from a previous marriage, and his permanent partner has some daughters as well. You're going to see pictures of Bernier, the family man, on Monday. And they will be out there with those sort of pictures specifically to counter what surely will be liberals putting up the pictures of Bernier and his girlfriend losing top-secret documents nine Mm -hmm. years ago. So they're going to try and deal with that image right off the top. He got some very good response from my listeners. One Sunday, a few weeks ago, we had four of the primary candidates on the show on, on one program. And he was very well received, except we did hear a few people from the West and particularly Alberta. And I know he's been called the Albertan from Quebec, but we did mm-hmm. hear some people from Alberta say, no, we're not going to vote for Bernier. We don't want another Quebec prime minister. Well, face it, it's going to be Trudeau or it's going to be Bernier unless the NDP pulls off a huge and magical surprise. Yeah, and, and my sense is the maybe among non-conservatives in Alberta, but Bernier, yeah, he is the uh, uh, what is it? What did you say? The Quebecer from Alberta? From, yeah, the Albertan from Quebec. The Al- the Albertan from Quebec. Sorry, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you got it. You know what I meant. We all yes, know. Yes, I do. Absolutely. Um, he's very popular in Alberta because uh, he, he's got this libertarian small government approach to things. He doesn't like government uh, subsidies of federal enterprises. In uh, Quebec, he's actually not that popular because he would, for example, he'd cut off these billion-dollar subsidies to Bombardier. Uh, He just wouldn't, uh, he says, the government shouldn't be doing that. That makes him unpopular in Quebec. And so it's been described to me that though he is a candidate from Quebec, he's not a Quebec candidate because he's going against the Quebec 
uh, establishment, if you will. One more question for you. How does the Conservative Party have to change between now and 2019? They've attacked each other. The 13 candidates, previously 14, have done a heck of a job attacking each other over the last several months. Now they're going to have to come together as a party. They'll have to provide an alternative to the Liberals. What does the Conservative Party have to do to present that alternative that becomes appealing to the Canadian voter? They don't have to do it all at once is the first place we start with that, Roy. It, we've got uh, the next elections not till 2019. And though all the leadership candidates have put forward policy ideas, and Bernier certainly got what would be by Canadian standards some radical policy ideas on you know, health care, the size of government, supply management, you name it, there's going to be a policy convention that Conservatives will have next year. And Bernier is going to have to sell his policies, if he's the leader, to that convention. And that will form the, the policy framework for the for next election. More broadly, let me list out the strengths and then some weaknesses for the party. Strengths, 99 MPs. Liberals never had that with Dion and Ignatieff, a whole lot of MPs in the House of Commons. Second, the conservative war chest is overflowing. They raised $5.5 million in the first quarter of this year, even while their donor base was separately funding leadership campaigns. The party raised $5.5 million, and you know what? That was twice as much as the governing liberals were able to raise. So these guys, fundraising machine. Third, there's 260,000 members of this party. So there's lots and lots of people who want to uh, clearly get involved with the party. That's the strength. Weakness. There is not a single conservative MP in the four Atlantic Canada provinces. There's not a single MP from a riding that has the word center in it. Hamilton Center, David Christofferson, Vancouver Center, Liberal Hetty Fry, Toronto Center, that's where our finance minister, Bill Morneau, is. In other words, all the downtown urban cores of our largest cities in the country, including Hamilton, there ain't no Tories. So the new leaders got to connect with urban Canada and Atlantic Canada. Think about that. That's where they've got to grow some seats if they hope to uh, win government. Yeah, one more point. Somebody asked me the other day, what are the chances of Trudeau being uh, tossed out by the voters? He has such a huge majority. Well, he has a majority. As you pointed out, it's not huge, but it's significant. But the Conservatives have 99 seats. And Mr. Trudeau won the majority with 27% of the national vote last time. So there is opportunity for the Conservatives, but it's going to be one heck of an interesting time between now and Election Day on 2019. Yeah, the, the answer to that one, the most important leadership race for the Conservatives in the room I'm in right now, is the NDP leadership race, which is really mm -hmm. just getting going and won't conclude to the fall. And that's because the Conservatives got about the same number of votes in 2015 as they did in 2011 when they won the majority, in terms of you know maybe a few hundred thousand difference. The problem, the NDP vote collapsed. It all went Liberal. And that meant that Liberals won lots of seats from the New Democrats, but also it meant Conservatives couldn't exploit splits on the center center left and come up the middle so conservatives it doesn't matter if they ran the best campaign at the best leader all the money in the world they desperately need a much stronger performance from the new democrats the new democrats have to peel away some liberal votes and if that happens sure there's quite a chance that trudeau could either be held to a minority or could lose government altogether yeah so any leftover money for the conservative party give it to the ndp that would be a very wise strategy for them, sure. I'll bring that up. <laughs> David, thank you so much. Good talking to you. Okay, great, thanks. All the best. David Aiken, the Chief Political Correspondent for Global News, joining us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. You're listening to the Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. We began with the Conservative Party leadership, which comes down to today. It's been going on for some time. And the candidates have been pretty tough on each other after today. It's going to have to be unity for the party. But the question is, who is going to lead 
the party. And uh, the conventional wisdom, if we call it that, is that uh, Maxime Bernier is in the lead, but there are other candidates who would say, wait a minute, I'm still in this, and uh, the votes have not been counted, and it's not over. Andrew Scheer is a member of parliament and uh, the youngest speaker in uh, in Canada's parliamentary history. He's been on the show through uh, throughout the race. We've talked to Mr. Scheer on a number of occasions. He joins us now. Andrew, thank you for the time. Uh, I spoke with David Aiken, the chief political correspondent for Global News, about a half an hour ago. And he told me he'd just seen you vote, and we were speculating who you'd voted for. <laughs> well, it's not going to be uh, too much of a shocker. I did vote for myself, uh, as I normally, I should say, as I always do in, in elections that I run. <laughs> so give us a sense, please, of what you think is going to happen throughout the rest of the day, how the, how the ballots may unfold, and, and how you see yourself potentially winning the, uh, the leadership of the Conservative Party. What has to fall in, come into place for you? Sure. Well, you know, even even now, we still have teams out uh, doing some last-minute get-out-the-vote in areas where there are polling locations. So we've got a team on the ground in Toronto and Edmonton, uh, across the country. Uh, and then at, when, the, when the polls close, it, we're looking for a few things. The first is, uh, you know, where I am on the first ballot. If, if there's uh, a, a big gap between Maxime Bernier and myself, if he's way out in front, uh, then it's going to be tough. But if we're close, I believe my advantage is I have more second and third ballot uh, support than, than he would have, and I have the opportunity to, to overtake him. So we're kind of looking to see, you know, if, if Maxime's above 35%, uh, if he's more than, say, eight or nine points ahead of me, uh, it's, it's going to be difficult, not impossible, but those are kind of the, the numbers we're looking at. So you're still feeling reasonably confident that it could turn your way? Yeah, there's absolutely a path. You know, uh, it's, it's these things are very difficult to poll, and the way the points are allocated, it's very difficult to get a, a very accurate sense. So we're kind of going off trends and, you know, how our calling has gone and how the, how our events have gone. But I absolutely do believe that there's a, a path for me, and, and there's a scenario in which I win, and it's not an unlikely scenario. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a probable scenario. So if, at the end of the day, Andrew Scheer is the new leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, what are the first things that you have to do? What will the new leader be required to do in order to make the party and the leader palatable to the Canadian voter? Well, I think we already are. I mean, uh, you, you look at the last fundraising numbers for the last quarter. We, we out-fundraised the Liberals by a huge magnitude. Our party has grown from 80,000 members to almost 270. Uh, on issue by issue, we continue to to be on the right side of, 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 of issues with, with Canadians. And I think what has to happen, the first job that I will tackle is bringing the party back together. Um, you know, we're, we're a united party right now, but after every leadership race, you know, you have to kind of reach out to all the candidates and make sure that, that, that we start focusing on, on the next job at hand. And so that the next first few days I'll be spending will be to reaching out to the other candidates, the other teams, and, and you know, congratulate them on a great race and a good job and try to start to put together the team that's going to take us to victory in 2019. Now, I should have said, how do you convince the 800,000 people who mistakenly voted for Trudeau last time? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> well, yes, you know, I, I, voters sent us a message in the last election. We yeah. have to respect that. Yeah. We have to acknowledge that uh, we, we did some, uh, there are some areas that we can improve in. But I, I believe very firmly, fundamentally, issue by issue, we're on the right side 
uh, of Canadians. We're, we're, you know, we're we're fighting to lower taxes. We're going to be against the carbon tax. We're going to be uh, for a strong principled foreign policy. These are things that uh, resonate with Canadians. I just don't think we've made that connection. I think that's where the leader comes in. That the leader can make that connection between our rock solid conservative principles and policies, and and bring them to Canadians in a way that may be more palatable or may resonate more than it did in 2015. There's a tremendous emotional uh, involvement that we are all feeling with the terrorism issue now. And uh, there's a tremendous amount of concern about what may be next. And I'm going to be speaking with uh, Dr. Christian Luprecht in the next hour about whether or not we now should be considering urban and suburban terrorism to be a really significantly uh, worrisome um, fact and uh, committed by individuals who fit seamlessly into the community because that's where they live. This is an ever-evolving issue. How would Andrew Scheer deal with the issue of terrorism, and particularly, because we're going to talk about this in the next hour as well, Mr. Trudeau's decision to return Canadian citizenship to the leader of the Toronto 18, whose plan it was to explode a truck bomb in downtown Toronto. And Trudeau said it's his decision, and he'll debate anybody, he'll take on anybody who challenges his decision to return Canadian citizenship to convicted terrorists. Mm-hmm. Well, first, first let me say that uh, one of the things I am most concerned about is that uh, terrorist acts like like the tragic events in Manchester uh, become the new normal, and that and that people in in, in Western countries in North America and Europe just kind of shrug their shoulders and say, "Well, I guess this is the price we, we pay." I, I reject that notion. I don't believe that this is the price we have to pay watching innocent civilians massacred as they go about their daily business. Uh, we have to maintain that sense of outrage and condemnation as a society and and, and as a government, and that's where I'm very worried. Uh, about Justin Trudeau's ideological bent on some of these things, where he does believe that it's just the price we have to pay for the the, the radical liberal ideology on on these things. So, uh, you know, over the next two years, if I am successful being leader, we're going to be crafting a, a, a series of policies, practical policies that maintain Canada's commitment to inclusivity and, and human rights, but also have practical tools to fight terrorism, both domestic and foreign. One of the things we need to do is stop the, the money coming in that funds radical Islamic creatures who, who turn the minds of Canadians into doing these kinds of uh, horrible acts. That's, that's something we really have to tackle. The government's not taking that seriously enough. Yeah. So I'll ask you then uh, the next thing I say to you, and I, I know you're pressed for time, but M103, what happens to M103 if you become the Prime Minister of Canada? If it passes, if it becomes um, a motion that is accepted by the Parliament, what does uh, Prime Minister um, uh, Andrew at least do with the um, with the uh, Andrew Scheer do with the uh, with the issue of M103? Well, we'll have to see. As you know, uh, it's gone to committee now, and then the committee will report back. And you know, if if, if we get a sense that it's turning the wheels of government into, uh, you know, stifling free speech or clamping down on legitimate criticism of of Islam, then uh, uh, you know, obviously, as prime minister, we'll we'll undo anything that that uh, stifles free speech. I've made free speech a huge part of my campaign. It's, it's an issue that I think resonates across the country. It does. It, it's an important thing. We see it at our university campuses. We see resignations at publications because, you know, they, they've dared to have a debate on issues. I, I, I can't stand that. In, in a democratic country, we should be engaged in robust debates on every issue. Yeah. So uh, we'll look at that. We'll see what impacts it has on the ability of Canadians to, to 
exercise their right of free speech and, and will stand up for their rights. Well, uh, Mr. Shearer, I thank you for the time, Andrew. All the very best to you. We'll see what happens as the day evolves. The voting stops at 4 o'clock Eastern time and sometime later this evening. Uh, David Aiken's feeling was it would around maybe be around the 12th ballot. We'll find out who is the next leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. If it's you, I expect to talk to you tomorrow. You bet. Be, I would enjoy that opportunity. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Andrew Shearer running for the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. But on the greater issue, the fundamental issue of terrorism and terrorism moving more in a more pronounced way, it seems, in an urban and suburban realities, Dr. Christian Luprecht joins us on The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network, Queen's University and Royal Military College professor, international terrorism expert, international affairs expert. Christian, thank you so much for the time. So here we are a few days after the horror at Manchester. Is urban and suburban terrorism an increasing threat? Well, I mean, uh, over the last 18 months or so in France, for instance, almost 300 people have lost their lives to terrorism and various acts of terrorism. And so you can understand why people in at least some continent European countries are a little bit on edge about this phenomenon. Take into account also the shift from hard targets to soft targets, whether that's July 14 parade or Christmas market or this sort of concert, and the ability of very few individuals to be able to have this sort of an impact with a device that was as professionally built as this deployed in as timely a fashion and deployed in as heinous a location to cause absolutely maximum impact. And this is, I think, part of the reason why initially the British Prime Minister uh, raised the threat level from severe to critical, because it has been, I would say, this does present a bit of a paradigm shift uh, in the trend level that we've seen with regards to terrorism in Western countries. Mm -hmm. The terrorists, in this case, certainly in Manchester, an individual who lived in the community where he exploded the device and where it now appears he had a network of supporters, a network of people who assisted him in this, in this horrible act. So this is why I'm asking is, is, is the, the fact of urban and suburban terrorism with individuals who actually live in the communities and fit into the communities and don't necessarily generate a second or third glance, is that something that has to be looked out for more and more? I mean, these are pretty much the attacks and the nature of the attacks that we've seen. And this is really not an ISIS strategy. It goes back to Al-Qaeda, where uh, Al-Qaeda encouraged people to and inspire magazine and by other media to think globally, act locally. And that's what we've seen with the individuals that have perpetrated the recent series of attacks. But the assumption was that... Uh, the impact of these sorts of uh, um, efforts would be limited, that we would be dealing with uh, lone wolf or so-called lone wolf terrorists. They're never exactly lone wolves because there's always some people who harbored them or had some sympathies for what they might be doing, but nonetheless that these would be sort of smaller attacks. But we've seen um, that in Nice, in Berlin, in Manchester, that even individuals by themselves can cause significant carnage, but that put that then together with a sympathetic uh, network of people who have expertise in bomb making, in bomb packaging, in getting a professional quality detonator, as was the case here, um, and then being able to package that bomb with shrapnel in a way to cause 
maximum harm, and uh, this is a deeply troubling phenomenon. Terrorists will always want to raise the fear level. And uh, yesterday, I heard that the uh, Secretary of the Department of Homeland Defense in the United States tell the hosts on Fox News, if you knew what I know about terrorism, you wouldn't want to leave your home in the morning. What is he talking about? You know, if every time I had, if I had a dime for every time some intelligence person told me that, you know, if you only knew what I knew, then this or that, then I'd be a rich man. So I, I, I'm a little bit always skeptical when sort of, especially folks from the intelligence community come out and kind of trot out that they know so much more than the rest of us. If they knew so much more, then we wouldn't be seeing, for instance, the sort of attacks that we had in Manchester uh, materialize. That is not to say that intelligence officials don't do a very diligent job and that they have a very tough job to do with very limited resources in a target-rich environment. Uh, but I also think that sort of discourse ultimately doesn't particularly help because if we stoke fear, and, uh, then that plays into sort of exactly the psychology uh, of terrorism that you alluded to and that ultimately we need to remember that these do remain isolated incidents. Yes, it's a, it's, 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 a, it's a major loss of life, but it was the first time in 10 years in the United Kingdom that we have had that sort of a security and intelligence failure. And so... You know, just like we live with other risks in life, this is, I think, just a phenomenon, a risk that we're going to have to live with. And every now and then uh, an incident is going to occur. But that by and large, I think we've done, on the one hand, a reasonable good job at identifying individuals at risk reasonably early so that they can either be convicted or that other services can uh, try to disengage them from their sympathies um, so that... Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure to what extent that sort of discourse uh, is particularly helpful, nor am I sure that it actually reflects uh, the reality of the ability of people who sympathize with violence, A, actually to follow through with trying to engage in violence, and then subsequently actually being able to realize those plans, let alone just devastating an effect as we saw in Manchester. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Christian, two more questions for you. Are politicians responding effectively to these horrific attacks like Manchester? It seems like we hear them say fundamentally the same things. We'll stand together, we'll stay together, we'll be strong, we will not be intimidated, we won't lose our uh, freedoms and our democratic way of life. And then another attack happens, and people start to ask, well, what are they doing? They're talking, but what are they doing? Is that a fair criticism? Well, I mean, these are all people who want to get reelected, and that's every politician's top priority, and so they will say ultimately what's going to play into that priority for them. But I, I'm, I think politicians have not done a good job, not in, just in the current context, in general, at conveying to the public the tasks that law enforcement and intelligence services carry out and how they carry out those tasks. I think one of the challenges is that most people get their impression of how security, intelligence, law enforcement operate from their evening television and from the television series that they watch on Netflix. And if you watch those series and you count, you will see that in a matter of minutes you have multiple legal and constitutional violations. And so the public is very skeptical about law enforcement intelligence operations, especially in this particular 
arena. And so I think politicians have a much greater obligation to explain to them, on the one hand, the difficult tasks that law enforcement and intelligence carry out, and on the other hand, that uh, what happens in real life has nothing to do with what people see on television, that I think we need to have a bit more confidence um, and ensure that we have the appropriate toolkits to, uh, so that the people who are tasked with keeping us safe actually have the ability to do so in terms of getting the necessary warrants um, and being able to impose peace bonds and whatnot on those individuals who are known to be at a high risk but where perhaps we don't have quite enough evidence uh, to arraign them, arrest them, and uh, have a reasonable prospect of obtaining a conviction. Now, it wasn't very helpful for the mayor of London and the U.K., to essentially say, well, if you live in a, in a major urban area, this is just something you're going to have to learn to live with. And I didn't hear too many Western politicians, be it mayors, premiers, prime ministers, presidents, take them to task. And there's always trade-offs, right? So uh, security is uh, compared to an insurance premium. It depends what sort of premium we want to pay. How much money are we prepared to invest and how much are we also prepared to invest in terms of ensuring that we have appropriate uh, legal toolkits on the one hand to uh, to detect and intervene early with individuals that may pose a risk and on the other hand to what extent do we want to say that we're going to cherish uh, privacy at any and all cost and I think um, what that sort of defeatist attitude to me signals is that we're um, that this is an individual who's not prepared to engage in the necessary democratic conversation about how best to ensure not just to balance uh, freedom and security, but I think this is ultimately not a dichotomy, but rather complementarity, and that we need to have an ongoing conversation in the public and in particular at the political level of how to ensure that these things do not happen. Can we ever provide 100% protection? No, but I don't think a defeatist attitude that this is just something we're going to we have to resign ourselves to uh, and live with is, uh, is, to me, an appropriate reaction to this sort of carnage. So well said. Thank you, Christian. Always good talking to you. I appreciate the time today. My pleasure. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. Dr. Christian Luprecht from Queen's University and the Royal Military College. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. I received an email from Mr. Gord Bibby, cousin of Robert Hall, who was beheaded by the terror group Abu Sayyaf in the Philippines almost exactly a year ago. And I've uh, spoken with Mr. Bibby on this program before. And the families of Robert Hall and his fellow Canadian victim of Abu Sayyaf, John Ridsdale, have banded together and begun an e-petition calling on the federal government of Canada to end their practice of no-ransom negotiations for kidnapped victims of terror groups. Mr. Hall's family accuses the Liberals of indifference toward their murdered family member, and now the interim Conservative Party leader, Ronna Ambrose, through something called, I think it's a communications office, sent a sorry for you, but the Conservatives don't support ransom payments either, reply to Gord Bibby and his family. Gord, I'm, I'm honored to speak with you again. That must have been a tremendous disappointment. Well, it was. Uh, perhaps maybe to cut uh, Ms. Ambrose just a bit of slack is that, of course, she was the interim leader, and, of course, now the uh, leadership convention is ongoing as we speak. So, But, you know, it would have been, a, you know, we'll just set this aside until the new, the new leader is appointed. And uh, so, yeah, it, 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 was, it was very disappointing. And, yeah. I, and I'll tell you, Roy, 
I will take Mr. Trudeau on at the drop of a hat over this uh, Bill C-24 issue. Uh, you know, uh, uh, my, uh, my cousin Robert and uh, John Ridsdell um, are both our families, both uh, immediate and extended, have, have, been, have seen the face of terrorism up close and personal. And both John and Robert uh, felt abandoned by their government, and that, that's their words, not mine. And now we have, uh, now we have our esteemed prime minister uh, returning citizenship to a, to a convicted terrorist. Uh, you know, uh, people who are not naturalized citizens must take a Canadian oath, and, and you, you alluded to this earlier. Uh, part of the oath is, is to uh, promise to faithfully observe the laws of Canada and fulfill duties as a Canadian citizen, which include obeying the law and defending Canada. And I honestly don't see anyone who uh, was uh, planning to blow up a truck and, and kill indiscriminately kill uh, people of, of all genders and, and ages uh, how, how they should have their their citizenship and he said he said a Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian so this uh, Zachariah Amara is as Canadian as you as your cousin as mr. Ridsdale according to the Prime Minister of Canada who also said that he would not rest until he'd resolved the issue of the murders of your cousin and Mr. Ridsdale, what's he done? Uh, there's been nothing done. According to, uh, according to some of the security experts that, that our family has been in touch with, according to many journalists who have dug very deeply into this uh, situation, uh, they can find no evidence that uh, our government has done anything to, uh, to pursue the terrorists and, and to seek justice for both John and, and Robert. There was opportunity to intervene militarily. The, uh, from what we understand, Canadian Special Forces were there, American military was there, the Philippine military was there, and the Philippine military had isolated the, the terrorist group that was holding your cousin and Mr. Ridsdale at some significant cost. I heard they lost as many as 50 of their soldiers doing so. That's correct. And, and then Mr. Trudeau just called it off. That's what I understand, and I, uh, also uh, uh, Bob's sister, Bonice, who you've had on your program on a few yeah. occasions, uh, and, and this is un, unconfirmed, but uh, she told me in a conversation I had with her earlier this week that apparently one of the journalists has uncovered the fact that CSIS got involved and wanted permission, and the Prime Minister uh, pulled the plug on that. So... Uh, <laughs> It's, 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 it's deeply, deeply disturbing, Gord. It is deeply disturbing. It, it, it really is. I, I mean, we're just shaking our heads. Like, and, and this e-petition, uh, that, that, thankfully, that, that you uh, alluded to as well, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the cutoff date for that was uh, the end of March, March 31st. We did get the required number of signatures, so it could be brought forward before Parliament. And what we find strange is other e-petitions that were started uh, around the same time have since been uh, brought before uh, the House of Parliament. Uh, the uh, E-696 has not, and, and we don't understand why. Um, it's just, it just seems like everybody's trying to sweep this under the rug. Yeah. Remind us, please, what E-696 asked for. Well, E-96 basically... Uh, wants to involve international experts and create a permanent Canadian cadre uh, dedicated to 
uh, the specialized arena of hostage taking. Uh, these would be uh, international experts previously successful in dealing with organizations engaged in kidnapping around the world. Uh, they would know who to talk to, how to talk to them, as well as keep the families of the kidnapped victims informed about government actions, and that was sadly lacking. There was absolutely no information coming to the families, to the immediate families, as to uh, what progress was being made. Um, and so it's it's just basically to organize uh, a strategy so that when the next hostage-taking takes place, and I think it's safe to say there will be another one and probably many more, that rather than having some uh, uh, politicians and uh, other people involved without any real organization, that, that there will be some act, immediate action taken. There will be, these people will be brought together and uh, hopefully have a better outcome for uh, the hostages than what was the case with uh, John and Bob. Now, clearly we can't, uh, we can't depend, depend on our Prime Minister. You couldn't. Uh, Your cousin couldn't. Obviously not. I'd, I'd really like to, I'd really like to, well, I, maybe I shouldn't because <laughs> he gets me so angry sometimes. But I would love to have a one-on-one with him. I really would. Well, uh, we'll consider that invitation sent to the Prime Minister. He did say that he'd take on anybody on the uh, C-24 issue, and I, I think he owes you and your family a direct response since he promised not to rest until he'd taken care of things. Uh, Gord, thank you for getting in touch. Thanks for talking to us today, making us aware of what is going on and what is not going on, and uh, I'll look forward to speaking with you. We'll do that in the near future. For sure, Roy, and and I'm honored to be amongst the very distinguished guests you had on your show today. So thank you very much. Thank you, Gord. All the very best to you and your family. Same to you, my friend. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye-bye. Gord Bibby. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Leslie Bikos is a former London, Ontario police officer. She's a Ph.D. candidate in sociology at Western University, and she's working on a nationwide study of Canadian police officers and uh, the impact of police culture on their on- and off-duty lives. And we've talked a lot about police and police culture, particularly the RCMP, as we've spoken with women in the RCMP who have charged, they were sexually assaulted, sexually harassed, raped while off-duty, and uh, it just seems like the RCMP likes to point the finger at the women and blame them, although the federal minister for public safety, one Ralph Goodale, seven months ago, stood up before Canadians, and he mentioned four women particularly. One of them was Atoya Montague, who spent a lot of time on this program with us, including last weekend, and said they were just being so badly treated and that the government had come up with a you know, a satisfactory conclusion to the class action lawsuits. No woman's received any money yet, by the way. And uh, things would be okay. Well, they're not. And they're not going to be okay. And just last week, two reports came out, one by the former federal auditor general, Sheila Fraser, which says the RCMP is a broken culture and that they are more interested in their public image than they are in taking care of the people who work for them. And the women we talk to are... Uh, struggling with PTSD, financial issues, and they're the victims. It's just bad. It's really bad. Leslie Picos joins me on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. I guess after what I said, Leslie, I have to ask you, how bad is it? <laughs> Hi, Roy. Nice to uh, be on the show again. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. No worries. Um, well, 
Like, I, like your introduction said, I've been doing a nationwide study on uh, police culture, which is including interviews with police officers in their own words about their experiences. And at the time I wrote the Globe and Mail commentary last week, I had done 77 interviews across Canada from 23 different services. Um, that number has since increased due to the uh, overwhelming response um, of officers from the Globe and Mail uh, article that I wrote. And that suggests that it's pretty bad, and pretty bad everywhere, Roy. It's not just the RCMP. How willing are the police officers to speak with you to begin with? And then as you speak to them and you get into the issue, how more willing are they to to talk about the things that are really happening, how it's affecting them, and what's happening to them? Well, I'm kind of in a unique position, and I think that's what makes this study so important. Um, being a former officer, uh, many and many of the officers that I've interviewed have said to me, you know, I've, I've either never told this story before, or I would not tell this story to uh, just a regular researcher. It's because you're an ex-cop um, that I will talk to you. So I think that's an important piece. Also, the fact that I will not go through the administration to talk with officers. Uh, it's just me and them. And so... Their worry, for the most part, of course, is confidentiality. Um, Many of them still work within the forces, and they are really afraid um, that if they come forward with these things or if their identity was revealed as participating in this study, that there would be real professional and personal consequences for them. So uh, it's not just the RCMP. It's police forces across the country where the image of the force is more important than the officers. That's what I'm hearing, yes. What uh, sorts of stories... Are you hearing? What's the? Is there a common denominator that just runs through it all? You know, a piece which is really emerging very strongly is mental health. Mental health is a huge problem, um, and it's not being dealt with. I mean, it's being dealt with on the surface, like you're saying, right? The reputation, so the the forces can point to, well, you know, we have this wellness room, or we have this wellness peer program, or we're doing the road to ready recovery stuff, or whatever it is that they happen to be doing. They can check that box off, right, for the public, and say, yep, we're taking care of our officers. But if you really listen to what the officers are saying, it's all a farce and that their mental health is not a priority for their police services. And interestingly, uh, predominantly what officers are telling me is that, A, they're not even reporting their mental health to the services because of the stigma and because they're worried about the professional implications. And B, it's not the calls for service that is the problem. Their mental health is coming directly from their working environment and the culture and their inability to function within that culture. And I imagine this is getting, this is going from bad to worse. You know, it's interesting you say that. Um, in the last seven days, I've done nine more interviews, and it's been interesting to hear the perspective, especially from officers who have been on the job for a length of time and who are saying to me that they're really concerned about the new recruits coming in, that it appears that the standards are, are going down and that, the, that this sort of mentality of officers coming in and uh, the culture that's it just seems to be getting worse. Um, and, you know, that has huge implications for public service, of course. Yeah. That's something that I heard. I lived in Quebec for the last, well, 10 of the last 11 years. And, and I heard people saying Quebec, and that includes the police officers, saying it's not what it used to be. Um, we're not what we used to be. And the younger officers, and I'm not knocking anybody, but the younger officers on the force are not as professional as they need to be. Well, you know, it's funny because obviously, you know, 
I'm pro-police and I want the... You so know, am I. I want, yeah, exa- yeah, and I know you are. Um, so it's important that we say that, though, right? Because we don't want officers getting defensive because we want them to understand that the, the reason I'm doing this study, the reason you're doing what you're doing is because we're trying to make lives better for them and then yeah. by extension, public service, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, almost all the officers I talk to say the same thing, that it comes from the top. The attitude and tone of a, of a service and the individual culture comes from the top. So... If you're continuing to have the same mentality, make it through the ranks and, you know, people pulling up their buddies through the ranks with them, you're going to continue to have that same culture happening. And, I mean, I think we have to be somewhat careful in sort of thinking of the glory days, so to speak, of policing, because certainly there's been a lot of issues back then as well. But you're right in the fact that I do hear a lot of officers, especially officers who have been on the force for, you know, a long time, say the same thing, that they feel as though the quality of recruits isn't as good as it used to be. We're going to bring our mutual friend, Toya Montague, on in a couple of minutes. Yes. So before we do that and we take a break, Leslie, what's the, what's the thing that, that Canadians listening to this program right now who, who need their police, who pay for their police, and want to trust their police, what do they need to know from the officer's perspective, as you're finding out? Okay. Well, uh, the, there's a real crisis in policing. Uh, particularly within the culture, and uh, their officers need more support and they need more help. And I think what is really telling and what I really wanted to say today is that I have been on the media and I've had national media attention for the study and the work that I'm doing since September. And in that time, I have not had one police administration reach out to me. I have not had anybody from any government body reach out to me to say, oh, my goodness, what is this stuff that you're finding? Um, because, you know, as you know, in the Globe and Mail article, I talk about, you know, rape, sexual assault, yep. harassment, bullying, yep. corruption, intimidation, all those things that are in that RCMP report, I'm hearing all across this country. And I think that's really telling. That silence says more to me than anything uh, that I could ever say in the media. When no you... response from any of them. You would think that they would want to hear more about this study. It's the first of its kind in Canada, yeah. Roy. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. You know what it reminds me of, what you just said, was an email that I received from an RCMP officer. This goes back about five or six years when I was talking with Catherine Galliford and uh, Krista Carley um, and, and some of the other women officers who were, at that point, still charging that they had been sexually harassed and abused. And I received an email from an officer who said, I'm retired. It was going to be a fairly long email. And at the bottom, he wrote, please do not identify me because what happens when the RCMP is beleaguered, they form a circle and shoot inward. I'll never forget that. And that's everywhere. And that's why officers don't come forward. And the amount of corruption that I'm hearing about um, in internal investigations and promotional practices in dealing with the public this should concern every citizen in Canada. Uh, it's a, it's, I, I believe it's a crisis. Please hold on, Leslie. When we come back, we'll talk more with Leslie Bicosa, and we'll also uh, add a Toya Montague to our conversation. She continues to struggle and battle for herself and battle for her health and battle for her financial well-being as the RCMP continues to battle to beat her into submission. And Sheila Fraser the former Auditor General of this country, who is a fearless woman, fearless, wrote a report that was commissioned by the Public Safety Minister, Ralph Goodale, in which Sheila Fraser, she's the one who said, essentially, that when the RCM, as far as the RCMP is concerned, the management structure is more interested in the public image of the force 
than they are in the well-being of the officers. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Leslie Bikos is my guest. She's a former police officer in London, Ontario, PhD candidate in sociology at Western University, and she's working on a nationwide study of Canadian police officers and the impact of police culture on their on and off duty lives. And you can uh, you can read what Leslie wrote if you access the May 17th Globe and Mail online. And uh, it's a piece titled It's not just the RCMP. Police culture is toxic. It's not just the RCMP, police culture is toxic, or if you just enter Leslie's name, L-E-S-L-E-Y-B-I-K-O-S, L-E-S-L-E-Y-B-I-K-O-S. All right, Leslie's back with us, and uh, so is our good friend, Atoya Montague, who is continuing her fight for, I was going to say survival, then I wasn't, but I guess it's that's what it is, isn't it, Atoya? Yeah, essentially it is, Roy, and you, uh, you nailed it once again when you described it as a battle. I am in a battle with the top officials in the RCMP and, and my government. Um, and, you know, I'm being fired on the basis of a disability that they caused. They are in violation of Canadian charter rights and freedoms. You know, it's really shocking that in a government with a prime minister who's promoting all of these values, he's at the G7 standing strong for these values that we represent in Canada is completely dismissing that this is happening to me and not intervening on my behalf. Um, and for the hundreds of people that Leslie Biko speaks with, um, they would concur. It's a, it's a disheartening place to be in this country and to be the, one of their victims. Um, it's a David and Goliath battle. I'm still in it. Um, you know, as of this week, I had to respond to this um, unjust, unfair discharge coming at an untimely at a bad time, obviously, given the fact that the RCMP has continued to deny that any of these acts of harassment and abuse have occurred. Um, so I wrote a 20-page letter to the uh, the Human Resources Officer, um, Chief Superintendent Alan McKinders, this week, and I forwarded that to the Minister of Public Safety and Emergency Preparedness Canada, and I forwarded that to the Prime Minister of this country. And then a day later, my, my doctor... Um, world-renowned um, expert in PTSD, also wrote to the ministers of justice and public safety to outline just how wrong this is. Um, he outlined to the RCMP, you are firing her uh, without, there's no merit to the reasons you're coming up with to discharge her. Um, it's not even based on the truth, what they've outlined in their letter for the reasons to fire me. Um, it, it's based on a, a medical doctor's opinion who doesn't have the um, experience or expertise to evaluate me, someone who's never even met me, um, has just decided that I am unfit for duty ever again, and therefore they're going to discharge me. All the while, not one person in the leadership of the RCMP has acknowledged I was abused, acknowledged I was harassed, or taken any steps to rectify what's okay. happened. Not and- one. And yet, Leslie, let me have you speak with Latoya. You know each other both very well. Yeah. Uh, Sheila Fraser, if you read her report, sides with what Latoya's case is. Mm-hmm. But well, what what do you want to add to what Latoya uh, said, Leslie? You know that 
Hi, Atoya. Nice to hear from you. Hi, Leslie. Um, hi. Great to have you. Um, that, you know, sadly, her case is not, you know, one. So many officers I speak to, it's the same thing. You know, they talk about, you know, their services, um, waiting them out financially or, you know, internal investigations that are corrupt, people lie, or evidence goes missing, you know, they're not being, the people who do these things aren't held accountable. In fact, so many times it seems that they end up being promoted and moved and make it through the ranks. And and so, you know, there's this real issue going on of no accountability, no transparency. And, you know, so how do you, how do you combat that? And like I said earlier, if, you know, I don't see anybody contacting me uh, on this study either. And this study is full of information about what's going on and the problems within police services. If the government is serious and if police administrations are as serious as their social media seems to make out that they are about making positive changes, then how come nobody's contacted a researcher who's you know, heard from their officers across the country. Yeah, and we have less than a minute. What we want to remind as well, Leslie, what you're, what you're telling us is what you were told by active police officers. Yes. Not by the, not by the, the administration and the, any police department. You're hearing this from the officers. Yeah, and, you know, of all ranks. So all it's ranks. not just, you know, people who you could, you could say, oh, well, they're just lower ranks and they're bitter or whatever that is. No, these, some of these people have had very successful careers, actually, okay. but they don't agree with the culture, and they know there is massive problems. Okay, but thank you both. Uh, Toya will stay in touch with you. You'll be back with us, I know. Thank you. And, you. and I look forward to speaking with you again, Leslie, as well. Thanks, Roy. I appreciate it. All the very it. best to you both. Okay, Leslie, because Toya Montague will come back with the beauties and the beast. Stay with us. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. We weren't able to connect with Catherine, and so I think all sorts of buttons were being pushed trying to get Catherine. She's just down the street. Hold on. I'll just open the door and I'll yell. <laughs> she, should, she should be able to, to hear me. She's at the conservative convention, the leadership convention. Do we have her now? I'm here. Okay. Oh, good. Boy, I'll I tell you. I wanted to hear what was going on. You're late by two minutes and all Bedlam breaks loose. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. That's Sorry. terrible. I, I was waiting by the phone and anyway, something glitched technologically, obviously. Yeah. So there we go. We're, well, listen, we're good how, now. How's it, uh, so Catherine Swift, Michelle Simpson, Linda Leatherdale, everybody's present and accounted for. We are. Mm-hmm. So what's happening uh, at the convention right now, Catherine? Well, Everybody's waiting. There's a lot of, I, I had to find a quiet spot, needless to say. You know how these things are, a lot of yelling people. Um, but everybody's waiting. At 5 o'clock, um, they're going to be starting to announce results. And it's, it's funny. The way This is a very weird, convoluted voting system. <laughs> I doubt if they'll ever do it again this way. But most of the ballots were already mailed in. So they would have already been counted. And the people that, I don't know the precise proportions, but a very small minority actually voted today. So they should have a pretty darn good idea. And what they do is there's going to be a first ballot, and then they're going to drop uh, four people off it, and then another one, and then drop another four. So frankly, I've been talking to people, and they should have the results pretty quickly. It really shouldn't take too, too long unless there's some inexplicable you know, glitch. So I was speaking with David Aiken uh, earlier today, the chief political correspondent for Global News, and David was explaining the the, the way the ballots work, and my head started to hurt. Yeah, it's it's very well. First of all, there's 13 candidates. It's a you know ridiculous number, really. Um, uh, but yeah, it's, it, you, you have to choose your first pick, your second pick, your third third pick, and of course, a lot of people would only pick one or might pick three or. 
anyway, yeah, and, and it, it's, it's a very iterative, complicated process. Like I say, I think they were trying to be very egalitarian, but I don't think anybody will ever do this again. It was so very weird. Just ask yeah. people who they want to be the leader and get on with it. Well, exactly, exactly. No. So, yeah, and, so, and one person, one vote makes sense in, a, in, yeah. in something like this. Any member has a vote, you yeah. know, which is good. Exactly. So is, does it look like uh, it'll be Maxime Bernier? That is the word on the street. Everybody I have spoken to, and, you know, naturally people are still loyal to whoever they're supporting, but uh, everyone I've spoken to who seems to have a, you know, sort of a broad sense of it is saying that Maxime will. So who knows? Something unexpected could happen. And I talked with Maxime at some length yesterday. Um, and, uh, he, you know, he was, he was, he's not a, he's not an arrogant guy. He just isn't by personality. Um, but he, he, I think he seemed confident if I had to guess. Andrew Scheer was on with us uh, as well. And, and he still seems confident. He says he can see there's a, there's a path for him to win, but a lot of it will depend on how much support Bernier gets in the first ballot. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But that's politics. I mean, the thing about politics is you've got to believe you're going to win no matter what. And, and I'm sure, you know, Michelle, you'd, you'd vote for that. <laughs> well, Maxine reminds me for all the world, uh, like he reminds me of Dion. He doesn't oh, no. have a good command of the English language. The other issue is he doesn't have deep roots in caucus. He may get elected leader, but it could be down the road where you'll see the negative effect of that. We'll see. I, I happen to yeah. like Maxime. I've worked with him. I worked with him on the yeah. Red Tape Commission. We were co-chairs. Uh, he was small business minister and so on and so forth. Um, his English has improved a ton, by the way. And you're right, Michelle, it's, it's not perfect by a long shot. No. But he has clearly worked on it. Because when I knew him five years ago, it was a whole different ballgame in English, really? I'll tell you. You know what was interesting? We had a, a Sunday here where we had four of the leading candidates on the show. Maxime Bernier, Andrew Scheer, Aaron O'Toole, and Kelly Leach. And the response to Maxime Bernier from listeners, and I looked at uh, Twitter and I particularly looked at emails that went on for a period of days. The response to Maxime Bernier was very positive. And we had one caller who said, no, 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 uh, Alberta and the West will not vote for this guy from Quebec. And, and what happened was oh. there was an immediate backlash from Albertans and Western Canadians saying, what is that guy talking about? We'd be more than happy to vote for Bernier. Yeah. And well, then we heard okay. that, that Bernier is an Albertan from Quebec. That, that was that, the... That's exactly, that's what they call him, because yeah. he's very much a free enterpriser and all those things that a lot of Albertans hold dear. So, yeah, I, I, well, do, I don't think that's an issue. I really don't. The odd person might say that if they've got a visceral hatred of Quebec in yeah. general, but I don't think that's a generalizable... Thing. Michelle, who do you think as a former member of parliament who sat beside the current prime minister for a number of years who do you think would have most rattled the the liberals who would have been their greatest concern most rattled the liberals yeah who were they who are the liberals most concerned about leading the conservative party who are they most worried oh, I, about I, I believe it would be maxine yeah you know because he kind of he's suave debonair He's got a great deal of youth, so, you know, I think they would underestimate everyone else, mm -hmm. but I don't think they'll underestimate Maxine. Okay. And he will carry some of Quebec anyway, and that's yeah. got to be a concern. He'll carry the Bolster region, that's for sure. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, his dad was there before him, eh? So yeah, that's, that's right. That's a generational thing, yeah. Linda, what, are you, what did you look uh, for? What, what are you looking for as far as the uh, leadership of the Conservative Party is concerned? For a fresh face, very fresh face. Somebody who stands up and stands up for the little guy, absolutely. I'm not going to say I believe in this dude at all, but um, I'm still kind of, and I'm sure that some of your listeners will say, they were disappointed when Kevin O'Leary backed off. Mm-hmm. And I only say that because whoever thought that Donald Trump would be the president of the U.S. I did. <laughs> well, you had it right, Roy. You had it <laughs> Stop right. Stop rubbing it in, Roy. You had it right. I said it and in July. I said he couldn't lose. You yeah. couldn't lose. And look at where he... And, and you know why I said that? Because Vladimir told me. <laughs> okay. But you know what, Roy? You had it right. And there in the whole world, not just in Canada, but in the whole world... There are a whole bunch of young people. There's a whole bunch of people who have lost faith in the whole system. and Not just young people. Yes, no. absolutely. And therefore, somebody like Donald Trump did come up to the middle. Kevin O'Leary, could he have done it? I still think this is just me, Roy, and you may agree, and my friends, the beauties may disagree. I think it was a mistake that he stepped back. What do you think, beauties? Well, I think that he that um, the the world that Kevin O'Leary normally operates in is so different than the world of politics that he underestimated what it actually meant to to enter the the political world. Again, Michelle, you'd have insight, I'm sure, into that as well. No, I, but, but I think you're right, Catherine. He thought it was going. Even Donald Trump admitted he underestimated that. Yeah. Do you know what what always strikes me uh, about these conventions and, and these these leadership races? They spend so much time pounding the daylights out of each other, and particularly when there's a big field like the conservatives had for the longest time with 14 before O'Leary stepped aside, that you wonder, you know, what's the collateral damage? You've been ripping into each other for, for months, and all of a sudden you're friends, and the, and the electorate, electorate's response can be, same old, same old. Yeah, same old, True. same old. But that is the nature of the beast. And that it happens, is the nature of the beast. It happens everywhere in every, you know, no well, matter That's what why it has to change. I remember Hillary Clinton and Obama ripping and ripping shreds off each other. That's right, 2008, yeah. <laughs> a long yeah. time, exactly. Yeah. I mean, anyway, but there's lots of examples you could give. Yeah. But, you know, Lisa Raitt, actually, and I like Lisa. She's a nice person. Why and, didn't and, she, hold on, Catherine, why didn't she do better? Why isn't well, Lisa Raitt a really serious, serious contender for the leadership? Why? Well, you know what, what I think she sort of undermined herself in a way. Unfortunately, her husband's very sick. Yes. Or, or, yeah. and, and she actually started to talk about she didn't even know if she'd run in 2019. I didn't. And if you're running for the leadership and you talk like that, and I like Lisa, don't get me wrong, please. Yeah. But you know what I mean? Yeah, it, I do. It really yeah. is kind of counterproductive to your own cause. But she made a lovely speech last night when they were all doing their 10-minute speeches about unity and she said you know there's really only one shade of blue and i I just thought it was a nice way to put it and and she did it in a really sincere way a lot lot of people i've talked to said boy that you know they they singled out that speech last night because after like you say roy after these leadership things people have to band together or they'll be cutting their own throats and they have to do it fast and they have to do it fast absolutely you're listening to the roy green show weekends from two to five on am 900 chml Back with Catherine Swift, Linda Leverdale, Michelle Simpson, 
and Beauties and the Beast. I, I just want to talk to you guys about something that we did um, uh, last hour. And we were talking about that horrific terrorist attack in Manchester. And uh, I'm speaking with Dr. Christian Luprecht from Queen's University and the Royal Military College, international terrorism expert. And one of the things I asked him about was politicians, after each of these attacks, they get up and they speak pointless platitudes, many of them. They don't make statements that matter, and it irritates people. It troubles people. And when you have the mayor of London in the U.K. saying, if, essentially, if you live in an urban area, you'd better get used to it. or just get, It's just a fact of, of life for urban areas, the price you pay. That is such a, a, a negative uh, perspective. And Christian said, that's because their main objective is always to be elected. So then we got on to the issue of our prime minister in 2015 making the case for convicted terrorists not having their citizenship taken away if they're dual citizens, that a Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian. And I find that so absolutely abhorrent because what he's done through his Bill 6, he's made it possible for Zachariah Amara, the leader of the Toronto 18, to re- recover his Canadian citizenship. This is an individual who was planning to explode a truck bomb in downtown Toronto and and kill and maim however many people he could. And then his objective was to leave for Afghanistan. So tremendous commitment to Canada. I want you to just have a listen, please, all three of you, to what I played for our, our callers. It's just over a minute of the Prime Minister of Canada, Mr. Trudeau, in 2015 about this issue. And it began with a question for Mr. Trudeau from the floor. My question is about C-24, the amendments to the Citizenship Act. Uh, Since 1947, when the Mackenzie King government passed our first Citizenship Act, there was a promise to new Canadians that they could be full citizens. And it's been taken away in this. The idea of actually removing citizens and deporting somebody who might have been born here but happens to hold dual citizenship is absolutely disgusting. Yep. Oh, what Thank are your you. views on it? Yes, yes. yes. Uh, C24, uh, it's the bill that for me exemplifies the Conservatives' approach to politics. Because what they get to say with the Liberal Party's staunch opposition to C24, because we absolutely and thoroughly impose it, is that, and I'll give you the quote, so you guys can jot it down and put it in an attack ad somewhere, that the, the Liberal Party believes that terrorists should get to keep their Canadian citizenship. Because I do. <laughs> and I'm willing to take on anyone who disagrees with that. So, so, so there, there's that nincompoop, and, and I could say other things. It's, but he says the Liberal Party believes that terrorists should get to keep their Canadian citizenship because I do, and I'm willing to take on anyone who disagrees with that. Then he went on to say that they can be jailed. You don't have to take away their citizenship. Well, Amaro was jailed and his citizenship was rescinded. I just find this, and so did our callers and, 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 our, and our, uh, what I'm seeing on Twitter and on email, is just absolute disgust with, with what Trudeau said. So 
Michelle, I hate to put you on the spot, but... <laughs> but you will. I but will. he's gonna. He's gonna. <laughs> I don't know what the little tunes are that are playing in the background, but... What, what do you... Michelle, what, do you, what would you say to him? Well, first off, how many people does that apply to that were born in Canada? That's my first question. Because I find it deplorable. I think that if you hold dual citizenship, and it's, you know, especially because I haven't heard of a lot, Roy, that were born in Canada that are going to be shipped out. But even if they are, our citizenship is a privilege and not a right. Yeah. And, and that's what, how I feel. And when he says the Liberal Party believes that terrorists should get to keep their Canadian citizenship, and you play that back, not in the middle of 2015, exactly. but a few days after Manchester, Catherine, it takes on a whole different ring. Yeah. Yeah. And what disturbs me is all the hearty har hars in the background we heard in that, too. Oh, I think they were, I think they were nervous. What a funny issue. Yeah. I, th funny issue. I think it was sort of uh, nervous laughter. Yeah. Well, for one, an awful lot of other countries deny a convicted terrorist there's the, they take away the citizenship so the notion this is odd or unusual is not the case it's simply not true many european countries do not permit that for dual citizenship holders and i think you know this is going to be an attack ad i'm sure as i'm sure many many will be in the next election because this is getting so scary but you know Roy, you mentioned something earlier that i think is so important that this notion of having an attack every few days, and Coptic Christians were just attacked in the last right, couple of yes, days, of by course. the way. So, you know, I, I mean, what are we going to have, three, four a week, and everybody's going to go, oh, ho-hum, this, this is what we deal with? What a, what a, what a crock. That's what, what the mayor, that's what the Lord Mayor of London said. But, but this is, I think, the new normal. This, exactly, it, it's folks. a new normal. And why would we ever accept that in a million years? No way. That he innocent should, people get slaughtered. He should step down. Linda, what's your what's your thinking? Oh my God, this is what I'm thinking, Roy. You guys are all going to think I'm smoking something, but I'm sick of everybody killing everybody. I don't care what country you're from or where you're from or what thought you have, but this has all got to end because you know what? There's blood on the hands of everybody, and the warmongers need to be put to death. And we need to have paradise on earth. But that'll never happen in my time, your time, Roy. The beauties and the beast. We can fight for it. John Lennon fought for it. Now you're going to think I'm smoking dope. But I'm going to tell you, that is my dream. My dream is for peace on earth. And we're not having it right in, now. In the, in the meantime, we have to responsibly deal with people who rob the lives of little children and if that and if that at means all levels, at all, all levels, so many, so many yeah. of these guys are already on the radar. The, the, yeah. You know, the man. Well, this guy, guy was. He was on the radar. Big, so and and he was apparently he was apparently, according to the New York Times, he was uh, affected by an extremist imam who was living in Ottawa, who's now exactly. in Libya, preaching violent jihad. I've got to go, beauties. Thank you so much, um, and uh, we'll see what happens tonight, as far as the conservatives are concerned. And we'll talk next Saturday. And let's watch carefully tonight. Okay, huh? It'll be interesting. Okay, toodaloo. Toodaloo. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.